Welcome to Bloom, the podcast where mums share their unfiltered birth experiences. We hope that by listening to their stories, you feel empowered and inspired wherever you are on your own journey. Welcome to Bloom. As one of 13 herself, large families are nothing new to Claire. Maybe it's no surprise, therefore, that she takes the roller coaster of being mother to her own five children, all in her stride. Join us as Claire and I discuss what she's learnt from five pregnancies, five births, and looking after five babies. We also tackle the impossible question of how to balance your own personal needs as a woman who has intelligence, talents, ideas, and ambitions with the needs of your children. Spoiler alert, it's not easy. Claire, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so excited to have you on the show because you are already an absolute superwoman in my eyes. I have two children who I already find a lot to deal with and you are sat making time to do this when you have five babies at home, babies, children at home. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, Yeah, I'm delighted. I think that the first thing I say is, you know, you you put your finger on it. I don't have five babies. Upstairs, I've got two little ones and three older ones. And, and you're right in the throes of it with two littles, two really littles. And my goodness me, thank God children grow up. Because <laughs> otherwise we'd be completely screwed. I'm glad you said it. I'm definitely thinking it. <laughs> uh, no, it's definitely the case. Everyone gets asked the same question. Could you run us through your name, your age? Can you tell us where you're from, how you spend your time? And can you introduce us to your your family, please? Yes, my name is Claire and I've been living in Oxford for 15 years. And uh, that was the same time as my husband, Alex, and I got married. And my eldest son, Edward, is going to be 15 and um so I was four months pregnant with him when we got married and then my next child Helena is about to be 13 and Elizabeth is about to be 11 and then I have two little ones Marguerite is four and Cecilia is three and I'm a teacher my husband Alex is a teacher and we spend our time mostly telling children off therefore either our own or other people's (laughs) (laughs) so we've got a lot to try and cover today can we start at the very beginning where do you think your journey to motherhood began did you know that you always wanted to be a mother what kind of influences did you have around becoming a mum growing up well I don't know that I ever thought consciously did I want to be a mum I think I was I occasionally I heard friends of mine saying you know they didn't want to have children and I thought oh golly I don't think I agree with that you know I'm pretty sure I want to have children but I think I just assumed you know Um, and I'm very fortunate growing up in a large family with a very wonderful mother um, 
you know, fantastic parents, really happy family and lots of children around. So I had lots of siblings, lots of younger siblings, and I had lots of little cousins. I was used to holding babies. I was used to children sort of just coming in, being around and not being much of a bother, you know, a bit of extra noise and a bit of extra feeding and that's it. It's not an issue at all. And always an occasion for joy, always an occasion of, you know, delight at the new at new life and love and that was wonderful so I think that the in terms of my my influences my own family and I come from a a very religious background so the lives of the saints again many of whom were kind of wonderful mothers or very wonderful children to their own mothers um really influenced me as well so that would be my you know the major influences I had on me growing up but I certainly didn't think about it very consciously Mm. um and I think that then when I found myself pregnant at the age of, how old was I, 20, um, I was like, oh, okay, that's slightly terrifying. Right. Um, but that was a kind of, you know, the unthinking privilege of youth, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways I was really, really lucky to get pregnant so young before you know, while you're still immensely um, brave in some ways, and it's the bravery that comes from basically not having done any thinking, because I really haven't. Interesting. So yes, 20 by today's standards is pretty young. Despite being surrounded by all these children, did you know all that much about what being pregnant was like, what giving birth was like, (laughs) what being a mother was like in reality? Or was that just all new learning for you at the time? Alex and I had been going out for a while. I was in my second year at university, found out I was pregnant. He was like, wow. The next day I went down to meet him and he proposed and we had we got married and it was wonderful. Wow. And he was just so kind of in without and without hesitation delighted that he was going to be a father that we were you know this meant that we were as it were bound together we didn't have to wait any longer before he could sort of propose in the normal way because that was great that was fine so as I say we were just we were really 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 lucky and um no I didn't know anything about being pregnant of course not um I didn't know anything about being a mum of course not because Mm. you don't know anything about these things until they happen to you really I mean, you can read stuff in books, but on the whole, it's not very useful. It just messes with your head and makes you nervous. Well, it did with me anyway. I tell you what, I think that there were two things that, as I was going through the stages of pregnancy, were quite helpful. And one was reading more about the biological processes involved. Mm-hmm. You know, not about what I should be eating or how I should be feeling or relaxing or doing yoga or whatever I didn't that didn't interest me massively but what I thought was extraordinary was reading more about actually what was physically happening on on visceral level inside my body and Mm. and this little baby's body you know inside mine it just blew my mind was there something particular that you remember and you're just thinking oh my goodness this is going on inside my body right now there were two things one of which was the creation of the placenta Mm. which you know is a something that happens so your your child 
when it's very very tiny embryo is does the placenta doesn't exist the placenta then grows and you just think well what an extraordinary thing for a whole kind of life support system as well as a child to be growing mm. inside your body that it's so extremely well thought out it's just bonkers mm. and then the the idea of a child inside you know they're blobbling around inside the amniotic fluid inside the amniotic sac in my womb trying out taking breaths and then because it's wibbling around in fluid hiccuping and this this hiccuping was something just made a massive massive ka-chunk to me you know that, that's what I felt every time yeah. it's like ka-chunk oh for goodness sake child stop hiccuping but it's trying to breathe you know it's doing the practicing for when the baby comes out and the first thing that I need to know is is it breathing and it's practicing doing that can you tell us a little bit more about what that first pregnancy was like you were discovering it all for the first time at age 20 was it a roller coaster do you remember oh it's horrendous yeah what happened what what did it feel like and what was going on in your body and your mind I didn't have an extraordinary pregnancy I was I was very nauseous I wasn't very sick I just got larger and that was quite tedious I didn't enjoy that at all (laughs) um also bear in mind I was at university and nobody trust me nobody else there was pregnant mm. and so I felt like sort of as, as I got larger that people were, were pointing me out in the street and laughing mm. and that wasn't very nice I'm sure they weren't like I'm, I'm now I'm 100% sure that that is not what they were doing but mm. that's what it felt like to me because you're immensely visible aren't you because <laughs> you're just big yeah I really really disliked not fitting into clothes things to be uncomfortable oh the itchiness just the itchiness on the top of your tummy bras and oh my goodness me bras are horrendous things but bras when you're pregnant the itchiness is something that I've not heard people speak about enough it drove me nuts absolutely nuts just on the top of my tummy especially oh horrible and then feeling always just feeling sick always feeling sick especially in the evening it's just lots and lots of bread and butter um so I got larger and larger on all sorts of fronts. <laughs> it's just not very fair, is it? It's not fair. As you got towards the birth, did you, yeah, how did you feel about it? You were young, you didn't have other people around you going through it. Were you terrified? How did you prepare for that? Uh, I took a year, I took a year out of my, of my course and moved away from Oxford to where my husband was working, which was 200 miles away. Uh, but it was, coincidentally, right next to where my mother lived and um and she was wonderful very very concerned always to be not to be intrusive so you know unless I sort of put my knee on her neck and said mommy tell me what you think she just wouldn't you know she wouldn't give advice she would sort of and I would say mommy what do you remember about x y and z she said darling you know it's so long ago I can't remember I didn't believe her at the time now I know she wasn't lying Mm. um and I joined an NCT group because that's what you do. And actually they were completely fabulous. That was that was a real help, but mostly in terms of taking away the fear of the birth itself. Completely no help whatsoever when it came to the important stuff, which is what happens after the baby's born. But hey, the most helpful thing that I had was an old book of my mum's uh, who'd given birth 12 times. 
and it was I don't know maybe it was written in the 50s or something uh, so the language was extraordinary but the, the the breathing exercises are essentially exactly what are still being used today and the idea is that you know you you're you trying to put yourself as much in control not not in control of your body but to keep your emotions out of the way of obstructing what your body's up to I suppose so to try and try and make sure as far as possible that fear does not hold you back because Mm. of course those emotions can produce hormones that don't help and you don't want to sort of get um, you want to just let your body do it do its work and and it had yeah and it, it had wonderful sort of um pictures that it conjured up in my mind about you know what was happening with the the neck of the womb and um you know the birth canal and where the baby was at particular points and when the baby turned its little head and then the baby's head crowned so I had in my head already a picture of what was going to happen at each point and it was yeah super what clarity to have one source of information rather than a barrage of different images and different pictures or different opinions of what things might be I mean each to their own but it sounds quite lovely to have that one picture to go in with did you have expectations as to how you wanted the birth to go beforehand or was it very much let's see how things go on the day I was slightly skeptical the whole way through the kind of NCT process, for example, um, about the idea that one could have a plan or one could, in any sense, control how your how the birth of your child is going to go. And I, sus- I suspect that that came partly from the book that I read, but also from my mother, uh, who was very, just very straightforward about the fact that, you know, babies are born and there's not much you can do about how it happens. And also, I suppose I'd heard lots of stories from my cousins and aunts, and and I knew that they were all different. And so I did not go into it thinking, I don't want X, Y, Z. I do want one, two, three. I think the only thing that I was at all, I had at all thought about was, do you know what? I don't want a cesarean, if at all possible, because how annoying would it be to have to have, you know, worry about lifting weights after my baby's born? I want to be as mobile as possible. Mm. And so that was the only thing that I think permeated my consciousness on any real on any real level. And then what happened uh, when things kicked off that first time around? So that was with Edward 15 years ago. How did it kick off and how did you know it was happening and what happened? Oh, I think... (laughs) So I had just come back from quite a strenuous day of getting up and down and up and down again. And I, Alex and I, were we'd had supper and... We were watching Middlemarch, that fantastic uh, adaptation with Rufus Sewell. Absolutely loved it. So we're sitting there watching it and I thought, hmm, okay, something's a bit strange. I've got some quite deep, deep in pains. They're like, you know, the only way I can describe it is you've got sort of something gnawing at your vitals, kind of dragging your, dragging the top of your, of your stomach down. So I said to Alex, oh, I just, I just don't feel very well. I don't think I'm going to go to bed. Now, this is me being a complete idiot. What I should have done at this point was said, I am now going to go to bed, get as much rest as I can. But I, I don't know, maybe I thought to myself, if I go to bed, it won't happen. And I was really excited and I wanted it to happen. What an idiot. Anyway, <laughs> um, 
so Alex and I ended up staying up for the rest of the night watching the whole of the of the adaptation of Middlemarch. It was about six hours long. I love um, that. And I was wibbling around on my yoga ball, which I absolutely swear by. What a fantastic thing that is. And the pains were just getting worse and worse. And probably about seven o'clock in the morning, I said to Alex, right, you've got to drive me into hospital. So he drove me to the hospital and I got there and the nice midwife examined me. And that's possibly one of the least least favorite things ever about childbirth is when they examine you for how many centimeters you are dilated and that when you are in pain from contractions is like one of the most disgustingly appalling things ever to happen yuck anyway so that happened and they're like oh you're only about you know five centimeters dilated so you need to go and have a good old walk or jump up and down some steps and you know we'll see you later basically telling me to go away okay gosh how did that feel after all that night of work not good because it is work isn't it i and i was very tired anyway so i I thought you know take this in the best spirit possible come on alex let's go and jump up and down some stairs so off we went around the hospital complex me in my silly pajamas and alex probably wearing a suit i don't know um literally jumping up and down all the steps i could find running that wasn't that looks look very silly uh and I did honestly carrying on like this for about two hours again I should have just gone home to bed yeah but I didn't so uh then I went I said to Alex look I'm sure the pains are much much closer together I'm sure I must be an interesting amount dilated at least by now they won't send me away mm-hmm. and it was I think you know five o'clock in the afternoon by this point and off I go back to the hospital sort of area and the midwife says oh maybe just about kind of you know just about eight centimeters all right we'll take you in wow after that whole day as well so that was you know almost coming on to 24 hours by this point but again looking back on it absolutely classic first baby very long drawn out first bit of labor you know and I should have I should have just rested I should have rested where I could and then I went into this horrible ward and there's lots of yowling people and you're trying to stay in your lovely bubble of zen yeah trying to do the breathing which I think was helping but I tell you when it came into its own when finally finally I can't even remember when it was anymore it's years ago at whatever point it was, at least 24 hours after the whole thing kicked off, I went into, you know, the proper kind of last centimetre or two of contraction, of, of you know, dilation mm-hmm. and proper contractions. And my goodness, you then you're like, OK. So I was complaining before, but this is now something on a new level. This is the real this deal. This is the real deal. Mm-hmm. And that's when the breathing thing came into its own. Suddenly I was aware that the only way to get through this was essentially just to give give way to my body and I'm all you know mm. that sounds very very new age or whatever whatever used to be called new age there was there's absolutely no way that I had any power over the kind of the tides of of pain and stretching that were coming over me and so I found just sort of just going with it nothing I could do and Alex was there and I was kind of aware of it but if I sort of reached out of that dimension into the dimension of the world again 
say, to talk to him or something or to answer one of his questions, then it had to do the whole work of like giving up again. Mm. So actually it was easier to pay no attention to him whatsoever. But I, I don't think I paid any attention to what the midwives were saying either, except at the point when they were very, very clearly trying to get through to me at the point when the baby's head was crowning and they were saying, don't push. And so it got, honestly, I sort of, I'd gone inside myself to that extent. Wow, and disappeared somewhere else and you just let your body take over. Yeah. That's amazing. But I'd never experienced anything like that before. Why were they trying to stop you from pushing? Because they didn't want me to tear. So they're like, baby's head is crowning. Don't push. Just just let just let the baby's head come out on its own. Don't do anything just because otherwise, it, you know, you'll tear your perineum. OK. And that was again, that was lesson learned. I did not tear my perineum. Brilliant. So well done, those midwives for getting through. Yeah, but she was, I think, having to shriek her head off. I think it was the waving of the arms. I finally saw her <laughs> waving her arms. She was like, no, no, no. And then immediately, like, pretty much, she's like, OK, now you can really push, so push. And then... There's this extraordinary feeling, and it's one of the best feelings in the world. And it's wonderful because your baby's being born. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of thinking after the fact. In the moment, it feels like um, I don't know. It feels a bit like an orgasm. It's like it's extraordinary. This like immensely warm swish, and the pain is gone completely. And there isn't this huge thing between your legs anymore. <laughs> Freedom. Bonkers. And then the baby's born. In that moment, are you then suddenly mentally back in the room? Are you suddenly, you know, you've been in this like amazing otherworldly space. Are you immediately back in the room with your baby? And what happens next? During that feeling, I was definitely still in the other dimension. Mm. And I was only called back to the world by the sound of my baby. Mm. And I see my husband, I can see my husband crying and Mm. there's this baby and oh my goodness me. And that's when I think I sort of re-entered the world, Mm. so to speak. So I think it was that noise. And then there was this little baby and... And he was very good, and I was completely exhausted. Mm. I mean, that utterly drained, utterly drained feeling. I think I wasn't sick when he, after he was born, immediately, after a lot of the children I've had, not a lot of the, but I think after all of the others, I just vomited mm. extraordinarily mm. with the kind of... Exertion. You know, the, with, the, with the, then the turndown of that adrenaline. Mm. So I felt very, very faint, nauseous. So I was pretty much laid out on the bed. Mm. And there's this baby laid on my tummy um, to do the kind of skin-to-skin thing. Mm. Fantastic. And then they give you the injection, Mm -hmm. the placenta, and they do the baby's heel prick thing. And I was not really conscious of any of this because I was just too flippin' tired. Yeah. And so all through all through this, you were never tempted to reach for some kind of pain relief. Were you tempted? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. I So at one point, when I had been pushing for... This was in the period between the, like, 8 centimetres and 10 centimetres. Mm. You're just going through horrible contractions. Mm. And because I'd stupidly been up all night the night before, so this would be going on for 24 hours, I was really tired. So they said, would you like some pain relief? I'm like, yeah, why didn't you give me any before? So they gave me some pethidin, and that was brilliant because that meant that I was only vaguely conscious. Mm. This kind of little hammock of 
of, of sleepy, not quite as painfulness. Mm, that sounds nice. And that was quite nice. And that was quite <laughs> nice. But they were, they were very, they were very aware that they wanted that pethidin to wear off before the baby was born, obviously, but so that, that, that it didn't affect the baby. Mm-hmm. But I, and I think that he was born outside that window. So that was, that was okay. They didn't offer me an epidural. And after the baby was born, they offered me some gas and air for when I was being, so the baby, God bless him. I love him very much, but he tore me to shreds with his little flipping fingernails. Oh. I say little, they're like talons because oh. they're ba- this baby inside you growing their sodding fingernails and toenails. Yeah, just in time to rip you to pieces as they come out. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and when I say rip me to pieces, in all the like nasty, well, nasty, the, the kind of front bits that you really want to not be Hold ripped to shreds. Hold on to, yeah. And so then I'd had this baby and he was lying on my chest and thank God he was very happy to just start suckling. Mm. And so that was that was a sort of great natural pain reliever as well. So I was lying there. He was starting to to nurse. Great stuff. The midwife's like, oh, you're so fantastic. Well done, you. Mm. And I felt quite pleased with myself. Mm. And they said, now we're just going to sew you up. I said, what do you mean sew me up? because I was still pretty numb. And they said, oh, well, you have several serious labial lacerations. I'm like, oh. what? And they said, they said, oh, yeah. I mean, um, so you've got one um, right next to your clitoris. Oh. And you have to be quite careful with that one. And I said, yeah, Better yeah, be careful. You really are. Can you be careful with that one? <laughs> and they said, and you've got several others. And I, I imagine that you'll want them to be very carefully stitched up so that you don't have any... Uh, intimate problems in the future sorry this is probably way too much no not at all I've gone there so yeah please do and (laughs) and they said I hope you won't mind this is a teaching hospital if we have one of our students come in so I was like it's completely fine Fine, do whatever bring them all this very nice midwife brings in a very young looking student midwife um and they get this torch, massive torch, and they're like, uh, like between my legs with their heads down, going, look at that. Oh, my goodness me. That's not what you want, is it? Oh, dear. Poking around. And the midwife had said at the beginning of this, I'm just going to give you a, a, a local anaesthetic so that you don't feel it when we sew you up because you really don't want that. And I said, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Please give me lots of local anaesthetic. So she'd give me that. And then they'd done all their, like, poking around mm. and essentially doing sort of, you know, Imagine what you do if you're stitching up a torn tent or something. <laughs> you're like working out what's the best way to deal with that little bit there and that little bit there. So they were like making a making a map of my nether regions. <laughs> but it took quite a while. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she said, right, we're going to start stitching you now. And the next moment I was um, startled out of my hazy fog because the local anaesthetic, believe me, had worn off. Oh no! And she had just stuck me with a needle, right there. No. And I, uh, oh my goodness me, pain worse than childbirth. Yeah. And that's the point where she very kindly gave me some gas and air, and I said, "No, no, I'm sorry. You got to stop. You got to stop stitching. Give me more local anaesthetic." Give that's me the not... real stuff. I say I wasn't saying I was screaming like a <gasps> stuck pig because that was essentially what I was. So you said that your feeding journey started very well did it continue very well it did and and that's one of I I was so lucky so Mm. so lucky because 
he didn't have any problems with like tongue tie or anything Mm. he was really happy to latch Mm. and I was completely sort of I don't think I don't think I felt self-conscious about it and that helps a great deal so I didn't mind sort of well I did mind I felt I minded feeling like a kind of dairy cow but that came later I think to start with I wasn't the self-consciousness didn't get in the way of just doing it and there was at one point where there was I think in the hospital there was the difficult first night and at one point he wasn't latching and a midwife came in and she just grabbed my boob and shoved it in my baby's mouth and that's that their trouble sorted and in fact any time I've ever had issues with little babies latching on some kind person has done that for me and it's done the trick and it's basically worked. yeah and how, and what was that like coming home with a baby for the first time and learning how to you mentioned earlier you know um nct classes are wonderful but don't necessarily focus on the real job when the baby's arrived um so what was that like learning to do all that for the first time well it was um it was okay after the first one of everything so the, the i was in hospital over I think he must have been born in the afternoon and then I came home the following morning and he um I didn't change his nappy and he was in the hospital I didn't change his nappy I didn't change his nappy and I'd been feeding him right and at one point before I was due to go home the midwife said oh and have you given him him a bath yet I said no I haven't given him a bath would you like me to help you with his first bath and I said yes please that would be amazing how kind and so I went with the midwife and she took my baby off me and she started to strip him off. And she said, oh, I, you haven't changed his nappy at all. And I said, no, it didn't occur to me that I ought to change his nappy. <laughs> and this baby's clothes were just stuck to him with black green poo goo <laughs> that comes out of a baby's bottom when it's first born. And when it's first feeding, and I was completely mortified because I had, I obviously should have changed him at least once. This is so reassuring coming from super mum with five children who now, you know, knows, will know all the ins and outs of all of this. But that back in the day, you hadn't changed his nappy, you hadn't thought no. to. It's very reassuring because nobody has a clue when you start for the first time. Which is wonderful, isn't it? It's absolutely wonderful that we are all clueless, essentially. And I think that I knew about changing nappies. I knew how to change nappies. But I was so up in the air with my little baby in euphoric kind of bliss. I just hadn't thought about the reality, the mundane realities. I was very protective, very, very um, protective. And I felt that I was the only one who could do anything for my baby at that point and I think that again looking back I think that that was quite exclusive of anybody else and that includes my husband and that wasn't necessarily mm. fair to him mm-hmm. I didn't okay. I didn't I was not conscious of this at the time and is that something that has changed with subsequent children as you've evolved as parents I think it certainly has in most ways except for when the baby's very new so when the baby's very new actually most of the time it either is sleeping and or crapping while it's sleeping or feeding Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know my husband with the best will in the world cannot breastfeed a child and so most of the time the child is quite physically on me yeah and so I think that 
the great thing is I've become aware now of, especially in those early days when I'm feeding the baby. And so the baby, I'm holding the baby most of the time. Mm. And the baby wants to be with its mum. You know, actually the smell of me and the rhythm of my um of my breathing the rhythm of my of my heartbeats is what it knows mm. and that's how I could feel when I the baby had been fed whatever but the baby was wasn't wasn't very happy or settled just being on my chest and feeling what it has known for nine months mm. of those rhythms and those noises helped in a way that my husband couldn't help such a beautiful bond it is such a beautiful bond but it and it is unfortunate in some ways that it's exclusive of all others Mm. but I think then now that I've been conscious of that trying to be a bit kinder in those times when the baby is you know more amenable to being with other people making sure that he gets a good crack Mm. at having his baby with him and this is only number one Oh, but they're all pretty much the same, aren't they? I mean, well, I are know. they? Tell us. <laughs> Tell no, us. they weren't. They they weren't, but they were. So then, Helena and Bessie were both born very quickly. So Helena and Bessie both were in serious danger of being born in the car on the way to hospital. Really. And what was what was noticeable, I suppose, about that was I was I knew now after that first birth, I knew what. The, the kind of the feelings in my body were telling me I knew what they equated to in terms of you know the passage of the child through my loins so to speak and where I would be at so then with both of them actually when I got to the hospital and that horrible moment they have to examine you and I'm like you can't examine me the baby's head's right there I'm about to give birth and, I, and actually with Bessie I did have to say that quite forcefully mm. so that the midwife did not leave the room and the baby was then born just like that. Gosh. And then the other two, the extraordinary thing that was born in upon me was that it had been a space of five years, perhaps. And a couple of things had happened. Each time I'd had a baby, the memory of the pain had essentially gone. So I think if it had, if I'd had a very, very traumatic experience or nature were different, I would still have a very visceral remembrance of that disgusting, appalling, horrible, unbearable, but bearable pain. Mm. And then I would not have given birth. So I had completely forgotten Mm -hmm. in a visceral way. I mean, I remembered in a kind of, in terms of consecutive events, let's say, I remembered, oh, and then the pain came and then the baby came. Fine. I had forgotten the pain, Mm. but I hadn't forgotten. My body hadn't forgotten and my body brain bit hadn't forgotten. So again, when those pains started and that feeling in my body started five years after I had last had a child again, I was like, oh, okay, yes, I remember. I know what's happening now. And then when you say to the midwives, actually, I've had three children already. They do listen to you then. And they are aware that actually babies can be born more quickly. With Marguerite, there were a few issues. And um, essentially, I think what had happened is, and I had the same issues with Cecilia, which is that like my womb had basically given up the ghost and it wasn't, didn't want to play ball anymore and something had twisted around. And what did that mean in practice? It meant that that last period before the baby, that, that last stage of. Uh, active labour before the baby crowns before you can push actually uh, is much was much much longer because I would mm. go I would go 
eight centimeters, nine centimeters, and all the way back to seven, eight, nine, nine and a half, all the way back, because something something was twisting round. With Marguerite, they were just about to get their lovely scissory things out. What are they called? The forceps or the forceps? They're about to get those out, and uh, and I was like, Claire, come on, you got to, you're not having this. I'm absolutely not having this. And I was praying really, really hard. Anyway, miracle, baby born, boom, didn't have forceps. Thank you, thank you. And pretty much the same happened with Cecilia. But I mean, obviously something had something had happened with either the passage of time or the fact that I'd had three children and my body wasn't enjoying it that much. What has recovery been like across these births? For example, post-labour contractions, not very fun, but with each birth, your uterus closing, do they get more difficult? Do they take longer? Are they more painful? What do you remember about the kind of recovery process after each of those? Has it been longer to recover each time? Yes, I think you've put it very accurately, actually. And again, it's just physiologically completely makes sense it's worse each time it's more painful each time and it takes longer each time and I suppose if what you want at the end of that recovery process is as near to what it was like before as possible Mm. with each time I became conscious I had to put in much more work and I say I had to Cecilia is three I am still putting in or trying to, when I have the time, put in that work because you do have to. So with Edward, that wasn't necessary. Everything bounced. I mean, I was only just 21, for goodness sake. Mm. Everything bounced back. And actually, because of that recovery, I was then doing a lot of physical exercise after that, which probably helped my recovery as well. Mm-hmm. And also I was able to breastfeed, which is obviously very good for that uterine strength and recovery so that was that's great and that was that's been the case with each of my children so I've been lucky in that respect but blimey do you realize how much longer it takes to recover each time and there was a very funny thing I've noticed with each of them which is that however much effort I put into losing the baby weight or losing weight try as I might my hip size would not change Mm. still be massively wide hips and then suddenly almost exactly a year after that baby is born, just overnight, snap, like four inches gone. Really? Seriously, completely bonkers. But it has happened every time. Wow, that's reassuring. So you now have five children and you're a teacher. What has juggling work been like whilst having your children? Did you go back to work when they were little? How did you go back to work? Did it change with each one as you then had more children to look after? Did you have help to look after all these children? Surely you must have done. How did how have you managed all of that, um, which is a bit of a minefield, I think, for a lot of people? Oh, golly. It's um, the thing to say to begin with, that actually the answer to your question has varied with each particular child and, and whatever stage of life we were in and where we were living mm-hmm. and our needs and whatever money we had at our disposal so it has varied in general I would say that the quick answer to your question is it's not easy whether you have one child or a gazillion I suspect the answer is always going to be the same that you cannot have everything Mm. if you're you know if you're working you 
are not spending time with your child. If you're spending time with your child, you're not working. Mm, it's a trade-off. You can't get round that. You can't get round that. And so whichever side, whichever side of the fence you are, whichever bit of the, the what happens, usually ends up being a kind of sliding part-timey scale Mm. wherever on that you end up that's because you have made your peace with that with that particular trade-off yeah with that particular decision and at various times I have had to do so when my first two children were born I was still doing my undergraduate degree I had to finish my degree so I had to make choices I didn't necessarily want to make I took a year off when I was expecting Edward when Edward was born. I wasn't able to do that with my second child. I had to take a term off, which is eight weeks, Mm. and I wasn't able to make up that term. Mm. And I then had to decide, was I going to go straight back? And luckily the vacation is quite long and my college has a college nursery. And I, in all instances, have been immensely lucky and people have been very, very kind to me. But that was not ideal. My my daughter was in nursery before I was happy for her to be in nursery. I've always gone back to work, but then after my third was born, I took two years off. And my goodness, what a joy that was. Difficult, flipping difficult. But my mother, who is a woman of great wisdom, said to me at one point something which changed my life, which is that, Claire, you are desperately trying to do things that are not being with your child when you're with your child and you're making your life a misery because you are you're constantly frustrated you're constantly thinking I should be doing other things I should be writing a book I should be baking I should have this beautiful house here I am at home with this baby and most of the time the baby is asleep and blah 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 I should be doing all this other stuff no she's like you in practice you can't do that but more especially your head is just not in that place Your head is not in that place. Your head is full of when's the next feed going to happen? Why does one of his the one of his feet grow its toenails much more quickly than the other? You know, when do I next have to change his clothes? All of these sorts of things. Your head's not in the right place. Just be happy with what you're doing. Don't don't set yourself up for frustration and failure. And you're looking at home, looking after your child. Dig into that. Dig into that. Be really good at that. And that changed my life because I was thinking I can do I can do X, Y and Z all at the same time. It's nonsense. You just can't do it. Or you can't do it happily. Stop trying to be in two different places at once. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was arrogance, you know, trying stop thinking that actually you can do all the things all, all, all the time, all at the same time. You can't. And your child knows it. And your, your children are so perceptive. They pick up on your moods, you know, they pick up on the tone of your voice. And suddenly when I kind of, I sat in, I sat back on my heels and tried to take her advice, everyone was so much happier. And, you know, I'd gone through really bad bout of kind of postnatal depression with my first child when I was at home with him. And I'd been so conscious of that with all the subsequent children and really worried that that would happen again. Mm. And this was the thing that kind of lifted me out of that worry and got me more into the joy and satisfaction of being what should have as much status as any high-powered job, which is looking after your children. 
Mm. not saying I was it was amazing the whole time and definitely I was like "Ah, ah," some days but but what a wonderful shift I mean is it about giving yourself permission to be a hundred percent in it as well to some extent I think so and I think that there were a few things all mixed in together that's definitely a big part of it I think also there's an issue of status which is that you know I'm a very vain person and I wanted to sort of be able to say something as well as I'm at home looking after my child and I thought well I jolly well ought to be able to be doing something else no, I mean, that was, that's just, that's arrogant codswallop. And luckily, my mother's able to see through that. I'm sure a lot of people do feel that way, that it's it's not enough in this world that we live in to be just at home, in inverted commas. I, I absolutely, and I deplore that immensely. It is a gift, and it's a gift that, that so many of us are capable of giving. and And yet... At the time when we are doing that, we feel that we are somehow not fulfilling ourselves. That's such a shame. I wish it had been easier for me to be content in that, be proud of that at the time when I was doing it, if you know what I mean. There's a million things that it would be wonderful to talk to you about. I know this is a whole big conversation in itself, but can you talk to us about mum guilt, whether it's happened to you and how you've dealt with it if so oh my goodness yes it has happened to me it's happening to me all the time um various manifestations of it depending on the stage and age of my children I mean I remember I'm sure something that's happened to a lot of us is just breaking down in tears when leaving the nursery with my child in it alone for the first time I don't really like the term mum guilt so much because I don't think guilt is exactly what it is I think it's this I think it's being torn you know I don't feel guilty about the difficulty that I undergo in trying to decide how much time or not to spend with my child helping them or not with my child because I'm trying to support them and my family but I definitely feel very torn and it's so hard to know what the right decision is it's so hard to know I mean I think that probably in terms of the women that I spend my life around now, and I'm very lucky to have a really, really strong community of um, of women around me, like-minded mothers who have children of all different ages and have had very, very different experiences in having their children. And the topic that comes up the most often is a variation on that theme. I could say to myself, actually, we can feed ourselves on my husband's wage and I don't have to go out to work. I don't have to. You know, we'd be poorer and life would be a bit crapper. But I could be staying at home with my children all the time. And sometimes I think that I should. It's so hard because on the other side, you know, there's me and there's my ambition as a person. And there's my and there's my feeling, you know, I could do a lot more with the talents that I've got. I have this. I have it. I have an intellect. I have a, um, you know, have a voice. I have ideas not all of these are being used while I'm with my child and they are some of them being used in ways you don't always realize at the time but yeah I mean I'm conscious of I think of being capable of doing other things and I'm impatient I don't want to wait till my children are grown up or past the age of five I'm impatient all I know is that every day I I am torn in some way at some part of the day I feel that that pulling from one side to the other and that I don't think that that will go away until 
that until the youngest one's about 15 and I'm not even sure it'll go away then I don't think it's guilt necessarily I think it's just being pulled from all sides it comes down to that inherent trade-off that you mentioned before that's not going away I think it's a more empowering position actually the way you framed it guilt makes it feel like you're almost a recipient of something whereas when you're you're torn you have a decision to make at least you're an actor in the situation we could talk about things endlessly and I don't have you endlessly um so what I would love to do is finish on a few quick fire questions if that's all right with you what was your most unexpected or strange pregnancy side effect okay you really don't want to know about this no we do we do well it ended up in me being in hospital with pain worse than the pain of childbearing and I'm not kidding you like quite a lot worse so urine retention I do not recommend it to anybody. Acute urine tension. It's when you can't pee. And and why not? I, this The answer to that has never been discovered. And thank you to my doctors. Some of them tried to work it out. Most of them didn't bother. And it was something that happened during my pregnancies. All of them apart from the first one. Uh, in varying stages of, uh, of, of seriousness. And usually ended up with me being an A&E at least like twice or three times a pregnancy in ridiculous amounts of pain. And once it was when I was taking a school trip to Italy and I ended up having to, (laughs) I was shuttled between one Italian hospital and another with a catheter. I was was in so much pain. I was just like, I cannot be on this train. She's like going like this, like this. I'm like, don't move, don't move. Ow, ow. For two hours. Oh my word. Yeah, I don't recommend it to anyone. What was your essential labour item? Um, you mentioned the yoga ball. Would that be the number one? Or was there something else that really got you through labour? Essential labour item, I have come to the conclusion, is a very strong bar or a strong thing you can hold on to. Because I ended up going down the route of um, all fours, clinging onto something. And yeah, it, it wasn't fair to put all of that on my husband. So yeah, something metal. <laughs> Um, you've now had five babies, five children. You have five children. What is your best baby hack or tip or trick that you know you've learned along the way? Um, when I worked out that babies quite often cry when they're just tired and they want to you to leave them alone. So my best baby hack was make sure the baby is fed. Tick. Has the baby got a wet or pooey bottom? No. Tick. Right. Put the baby in the next room and shut the door. The end. Help me no end. And 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 knowing that it's really quite, you have to really try quite hard to harm a baby. Brilliant. And finally, if, you know, we've got other mums or mums-to-be out there listening and thinking, you know, I would love to have loads of kids. I love the idea of that, but that's just impossible. That, you know, I, it's impractical, money, you know, or whatever the reason, it's not possible. What, what would you say to those people who love the idea but just think, you know, how on earth would I do this? I would say don't be put off. I think I would say that having a large family is not something we see around us very often. And so it can be something that you think, oh, my goodness, that must be that must be really hard or it must be really expensive. And neither of those two are true. Don't be put off. I think probably the most difficult time I've ever had was when I had three little ones or two little ones but frankly as soon as you've gone from having not children to children you've crossed that line Mm. you know you have invited into your life this kind of 
ball of of sort of of joy and rapture and mess and goo and 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 chaos and hurrah for that if that's your thing so if you enjoy having children and you want you just want to carry on that you want your children to have siblings whatever great if that's what you want go for it and don't be put off by the kind of the worry that it will be really expensive or the worry that it will be really much more difficult because it isn't it it really really is not I know so many people so okay I'm a teacher and my husband is teacher go figure to yourself how much money we must have it is not much and I know many many people with many more children than I on much less money it is it does not have to be expensive at all it really doesn't and it doesn't have to be chaotic and it doesn't have to be hard because again remember we can't help but that children grow up so you are only going to have unless you are blessed with triplets and then triplets and then triplets and I do know somebody who came very close to that you are not going to have more than like three children under four or and that's fine that's completely fine it's hard work but if that's your thing please don't be put off you won't see it in the media you won't see it in a film or whatever or and if you do it'll look like ridiculousness but it isn't ridiculousness that's actually people have managed that for centuries because it's completely fine and it's really quite good fun oh claire thank you so much for telling us all of this for all of the wise words and funny stories one final thing i'd like to say is but is there anything that particularly stands out that you would like to share or say that we have just not managed to get to i think you've done an amazing job amelia i don't know i mean i think i think honestly that the only thing i feel that i'd like to share is that one of the most wonderful things in my life is you know the fact that i have my children and i know how lucky i am because i know how many people struggle and I think that one of the most, the luckiest thing in all of that blessing is that I had children young. Mm. And I've had children when in my 20s and I've had children in my 30s. And blimmin' hell, there is a difference. Mm. And so, you know, it's not for everybody, but just as an observation, to have your children really young is really a lot easier. My body said that and my brain said that both at the same time. Thank you so much. That's the end of this episode. Take care and see you next time.